morning, and welcome to Rising. That's a show hosted by us, and this is it, and it's starting now. <laughs> Channeling a little pert happily this morning from uh, Parks so and Rec. So I see. <laughs> How do we get so lucky? <laughs> All right, what's going on? Well, the big news is that a deal has been reached in favor of railroad workers. Washington Post reporters Lauren Gurley and Jeff Stein report that railroads have agreed to give workers the ability to take days off from medical care without being subject to discipline. Stein says that this was the key demand that railroad workers wanted to strike over, and they got it. According to the report, President Biden was personally animated about the lack of leave for railroad workers and pushed for the deal. The final agreement includes voluntary assigned days off and a single additional paid day off and provides workers with the ability to take unpaid days for medical care without being subject to attendance policies. Well, meanwhile, the Department of Labor called it the agreement that balances the needs of workers, businesses, and our nation's economy. This comes, of course, after Amtrak canceled all long-distance trains yesterday in anticipation of the strike that would see thousands of engineers, conductors, and other railroad workers leave their posts. According to Jeff Stein, there's a lot more that could go wrong if a shutdown occurred. In addition to Amtrak closing, ammonia, fertilizer, and the entire agricultural system would be disrupted. The price of ethanol, other products would soar, and grain shipments could stop, which obviously would be catastrophic. I was reading that uh, now apparently just kind of normal passenger train service in our corridor in the Northeast was not going to be affected. Mm. But, uh, but you know, the, the much more imp impactful for the economy would be these products um, not being available at a time where obviously the supply chains are already stressed. We're, you know, on the possibly on the brink of a recession or have just come out of one. Um, it's uh, so I think it's extremely good news that a strike has been averted, at least for now, hopefully for good. And and look, as I said on the show yesterday, I I don't have any issue uh, with private sector unionization for workers coming together and uh, and organizing for better treatment and conditions. These conditions sound very difficult, mm -hmm. and I I'm I'm glad they got uh, they got some concessions here from management. I would be fine with more concessions, but uh, we really don't want to strike because that would be so bad for the economy. Well, look, I think this is an interesting moment for Americans who for the last, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago are relatively unfamiliar with these kind of strike threats and how they're able to finally actually secure some rights for workers uh, that are not usually given over without really, really, really tough battles like this one. Uh, and I'll talk more about this in my radar, but it's important to note that the kind of preemptive shutdowns that started to, to happen were the result, uh, reporter, labor reporters like jo Jonah Furman were making this clear yesterday, they were the result of Amtrak, or not Amtrak, rather, the railroad companies trying to squeeze workers, preemptively shutting down and basically threatening the government to say, you have to come on our side and help us force the workers to the table and force them to go ahead and work. Remember, they've been working without a contract for three months now all over this one relatively narrow demand to simply be able to take time off. And it literally took shutting down the country for these railroad workers, 120,000 odd railroad workers, to get this. After years of being told that they were essential workers, that they were so crucial to the supply chain that America couldn't roll without them. And All those things are true. It, they are they, crucial they to the supply chain. They very much are true. And what, and what will, I think will be interesting to see is whether or not this is a moment that helps Americans understand the importance of labor and how our fates are all linked, or whether this is a moment where people will, as I saw a lot of the media doing, kind of sneer at the idea that people would shut down the economy and cause inflation to be worse. Um, 
and, and, focus, and real focus on what's going to happen to the consumer as opposed to what this means about the workers' rights and interests. Well, I don't think it's wrong to bring up what would happen to consumers. We're all consumers. We're not all railway workers. Well, we're all wor- many more of us are workers than uh, our consumer value. Uh, we can't consume unless we have money to spend on it, right? right. And the reality is that there are v- significant cultural differences between the United States and other countries where, frankly, they have a lot more labor rights and protections because they do go on strike more frequently. I observed this when I was in France over the summer during their transit strike. And even though there was a lot of congestion, it was very inconvenient, there was, you know, one rental car left in the whole city and it had a stick shift and it was very expensive that we had to rent. I mean, there were a lot of things to be legitimately irritated by. But when I, we spoke to folks, they were like, ah, they strike, this is what happens, c'est la vie. And they understood that workers being able to fight for higher wages had an effect on the broader economy that it benefited them as well. And they did it. There was none of this kind of antagonism or really quick leaping to, oh, but is this going to ruin my commute that I tend to see here in America. Mm. But we're a much wealthier country than all those countries, and possibly in part because we ask more of our laborers. I think there is a lot more concentrated wealth at the very top and a lot of unequal distribution of wealth in the United States because we don't pay workers for the value of their labor. And as I'll talk about on my radar, the the railroad barons who run the four major railroad companies have seen unprecedented profits at the same time well, they rail, were denying uh, a day off. Sure, and, and rail is a very cronyist enterprise, very uh, the level of collusion, maybe maybe by necessity, although I tend to think you could have um, much more private ownership and much more um, decentralization and much more actual competition, but as it exists, it's yeah, it such a... Monopolies are definitely an issue abs- in the railroad yeah, issue. It's a, it's a huge monopoly issue. So how do Americans feel about the labor movement? Uh, according to new polling, voters in key battleground states say they are much more likely to support a pro-union candidate over an anti-union candidate. Heart Research released these numbers that show pro-labor candidates have a 24-point advantage with swing voters mm. and especially appeal to young voters. Mm. And I think this was part of what helped uh, Biden in the final stretch over Donald Trump. You know, he you know, stood behind a whole host of anti-union policies after really kind of framing himself during the 2016 primary as someone who was in a a bit of a different mold from other Republicans in that respect. Someone who championed worker rights, who was very critical of some of these neoliberal deals like NAFTA that were so destructive to so much of the labor force. Uh, and it looks like people are recognizing that perhaps their actions matter more than just mm-hmm. those kinds of words. There's no doubt that um, Donald Trump's fr- or perceived friendliness with labor was a huge advantage to him, not just over Hillary Clinton, but within the Republican mm-hmm. field, because you have this uh, this kind of voter who's now much better understood, but at the time was not well understood that they were sort of con- they had kind of conservative social values in some sense, or at least not hardcore you know, progressive social values, but they were workers and they had had a good relationship with labor. Maybe they were dissatisfied with labor management and, you know, perceived closeness to the Democratic Party on those cultural social issues, but on the bedrock economic issues, grateful for what labor has done. And Donald Trump understood that. um, And and it was a, a major part of his success. I'm not surprised, I guess, that, you know, young people, just to the extent that they're much more to the left on basically every axis uh, would be more uh, maybe maybe the labor movement maybe I don't know maybe it's cyclical um, because there was a, obviously a high point for labor and then you know support for labor and labor's actual power has eroded somewhat I mean there were some associations of labor with crime and with intimidation and corruption and all sorts of things but uh, maybe people maybe that's far enough well, a, in lot, the- a lot of these young people are also just really 
working class laborers these days as we lose social mobility in my generation, the generation behind us. There's a lot of sneering about baristas that comes from the political elite echelons, but that's the average working class worker these days. It's a retail worker, not someone in a hard hat in a mine. Right. And I think that the kids are, are realizing that. They live it. Well, we're eager to continue this subject, uh, which is in your radar, which is coming up. Brianna, I'm so excited to learn what's on your radar today. <laughs> well, Robbie, I woke up to some good news this morning, sort of. Only after threatening to go on a strike estimated to cost the economy $2 billion a day did railroad workers, the archetypal blue-collar worker that politicians from coast to coast claim to hold up as the country's most deserving, most blue-collar, most essential of workers, manage to secure a concession considered to be a given much of the world over. The ability to take days off for medical care without being subject to discipline. Even though this battle is largely in the rear view mirror, we shouldn't forget what almost just transpired and why. Because moments like this are important mask off moments which reveal how politicians and corporate media really feel about the working class. After largely ignoring the crisis until last week, media outlets from Fox News to CNN spent the last few days focusing on the impact a rail strike would have on consumers. As the Washington Post reported, if the strike were to happen, retailers would miss their shipping and pickup dates, and the supply chain crisis will become exacerbated. It would even affect the nation's energy supply and drinking water. This is serious stuff, which begged the question, why was management dragging its feet on the workers' demands? Why had workers been working without a contract for years? They must have been asking for something pretty unreasonable, right? <laughs> well, it's hopefully obvious to all now that the dust has settled that the only unreasonable party was management. Railroad workers have had to work up to 90% of their waking lives until they retire with no provision for sick days, paid or unpaid. They're on call 24-7, work 80-plus hours a week, and one of the largest railroads has an attendance policy that gives its workers just one day off per month. That's 12 days total a year. While the white-collar elites that set these schedules enjoy their weekends and holidays, these real workers do not. This conflict literally wasn't even about higher pay, just the right to take time off and go to the doctor without being fired. As one conductor told the Washington Post, living the way we live is absolutely brutal. Our folks are working sick and tired because they can't take a day off. Railroad workers have to be on call to report to work seven days a week, average away from home terminal time 90 plus hours a week, get hurt or even killed because of the unsafe working conditions, said another. We demand more quality of life provisions, according to the contract, covering attendance policies, vacation, and sick, sick days, end quote. Given how terrible those conditions sound, there must be some reason the railroad companies tried so hard to avoid giving into the demands, right? Like, maybe, maybe they were having a hard time coming up with the money. Nope. Unsurprisingly, it was corporate greed that caused the crisis. Railroad investors like Warren Buffett have made record billions in profits while laying off workers and cutting costs. An investigation by the American Prospect from February found that the consolidation of the railroad industry and a practice known as PSR or precision railroading has been extremely lucrative precisely because it squeezes employees to run faster at the expense of worker safety and apparently quality of life. 
This has contributed to nearly 40,000 railroad jobs being lost between 2018 and 2020 alone. That's before the pandemic. The workforce has dropped from 1 million workers in the 1950s to fewer than 150,000 in 2022. And the workers that are remaining have been stretched thinner and thinner while management makes money hand over fist. One worker explained that carriers make 50% profit margins off of railroad worker labor. Meanwhile, BNSF and Union Pacific, two of the largest railroad companies in America, reported record profits in 2021. And according to The Guardian, BNSF has paid out $196 billion in stock buybacks and dividends to shareholders since 2010. But what do the workers get? Not a single solitary day off until now. Now, much of the reporting, again, is focused on how disruptive this will be to the economy. As though the onus is on the railroad workers to endure all the inconvenience in the world so that their managers can save a buck. But it wasn't the railroad workers who were shutting down the economy. It was the bosses who couldn't or really wouldn't do the absolute bare minimum to support workers who have created these enormous profits for them. How did it get this far in the first place? Apparently, Mayor's, Mayor Pete's brief stints at McKinsey, and as the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, didn't seem to have prepared him for the Secretary of Transportation gig, perhaps unsurprisingly, since more workers are implicated in this railroad contract negotiation than live in South Bend. And although Biden claimed to be the most union-friendly president in a generation, apparently the bar is sort of low. Now, Biden did, in fact, intervene months ago in the presidential emergency board uh, via the presidential emergency board, rather, which was supposed to prepare, uh, propose a fair settlement that avoided a strike. But it ignored the quality of life issues that were central to the workers concerns, leaving workers with little recourse beyond striking. Ultimately, with the threat of a national rail strike looming, Biden apparently became personally animated about this issue and helped workers to reach a tentative deal. And I'm sincerely glad for it. But those who would criticize workers for threatening to strike should ask themselves whether they would have secured this tentative victory after years of fighting, but for their ability to strike, their ability to threaten to shut down the nation. This is precisely why unions are so important and the right to strike must be protected. For all of the symbolic support of workers in this country, there is a troubling antipathy toward the strategies that give them real power. Conservatives in particular have an openly hostile relationship to unions and labor, quite openly siding with corporate bosses. Corporatists in both parties have made it harder to unionize, and conservative administrations have made the National Labor Relations Board, the body tasked with enforcing what labor rights workers do have, toothless at times. Yesterday, BNSF, Warren Buffett's railroad, wrote to Congress urging them to pass legislation that would force rail workers to say yes to contract terms that would grant them zero sick days. And Republicans seem to be on board, issuing a request to force railroad workers and companies to accept those strike terms. Only Bernie Sanders blocked it, stating, I think uncontroversially, that workers in the freight rail industry are entitled to more then zero sick days. I wonder what would have happened if he hadn't. When I was in France over the summer during their transit strike, I noted that although traffic was terrible, trains were full, and there was only one rental car left in Paris, a stick shift, thank goodness my mother can drive one, <laughs> no one complained. 
The people there understood that their fate, their ability to have good wages and humane time off policies, medical leave and maternity leave, was linked to the efforts of striking laborers. And the workers on strike had the full support of the public. Our workers are just as hardworking, as deserving, as important to our community as French transit workers are to theirs. And I only hope that the real lesson learned here is the importance of solidarity. So I have to say this because while I don't like Mayor Pete at all and have criticized him a lot on the show, I have I've criticized him in the past and people have said, oh, you're criticizing for something that technically isn't under his jurisdiction. And I, that tweet that Ryan Grimm had, I saw Matt Iglesias respond to it. So apparently there's such a thing, you probably know this, but I didn't, called the National Mediation Board, mm -hmm. which is responsible for a government agency that handles disputes in the airline employee industry and with rail employees. And so this is technically not under his jurisdiction. Falls to this board I've never heard of. Linda Puchala is the relevant chairman of this board. She was appointed by Barack Obama and then reappointed by Donald Trump and then reappointed again by Joe Biden. And she was formerly in a union for the flight attendant. So she seems like a very pro-labor person. So. All right. Uh, if, if, the, if the Mayor Pete Hill is the one you want to die on. I mean, I don't want to die on it. I, <laughs> I can't. Oh, I've look, accused him of breaking the entire airline industry before our very eyes. But yeah, well, look, there were, I think the people rightly look to the heads of the um, sec uh, the secretaries of the departments that oversee the broad authority that's going on in these kind of situations. This isn't the first time that there has been, obviously, these broad infrastructural issues related to transportation that Mayor Pete has to come under scrutiny for. But the real issue here is why there is a united front, it seems, across government and, frankly, largely across parties, although it's important to note that Democrats have been much less hostile, at least much less openly hostile to labor interests than conservatives have over the past you know, few decades. Um, but why it is that there is so much of a kind of regressive attitude about labor in this country, and it's really bifurcating, I think, our nation. You have a small wave, but a wave nonetheless, of strike actions that are happening across the country, with Starbucks workers unionizing all across the country at the same time that uh, Starbucks, the corporation, is uh, trying to do all kinds of union busting techniques that, uh, that are illegal. Um, you have a wave of teacher strikes. You obviously have the Amazon strike, uh, the Amazon um, unionization effort that has been making headlines all across the country. You know, th there, there is a growing understanding among some portion of the population that we live in a gilded age and they're finally rising up despite not having the labor protections of old and, and clawing back some rights for workers. However, there is a level of pushback in this country that is very easy to observe. Even I, I see among some of my progressive colleagues where I see a lot of hemming and hawing and eye rolling about, oh, what is this going to do to the country? And it's not that it is wrong for people to be inconvenienced, but there is not that, that, that um, fortitude of solidarity that you see in other places where folks really understand that the whole point of this, the whole point of the media infrastructure here is to cause individuals to see themselves as consumers rather than workers and flip against the workers in these scenarios. And I really hope that this moment is one that starts to teach us more and more what can be gained if we stand in solidarity with each other. Mm. I think all these labor movements are not the same, though. For instance, the teachers, which I'm much less sympathetic to because they're public employees we're talking about, where they're, they're, strike at, I mean, they're, they're striking against us, where the people they work for 
the U.S. taxpayer. So they're striking again, and which they have totally different incentives than uh, the the people who work in in rail or in or at Starbucks or at, even at Amazon, because all of those employees have to, in their organizing have to be reasonable because they don't want. They don't want the company to suffer because they're, they're employees of the company. Whereas when, when, when the company is just the taxpayer, you, which you can always get more money, like we're, we're not going to shut down the schools. So they, ha they don't have an incentive to be reasonable the same way people who work for a private company, uh, people who are organizing against a private company do. The average teacher's salary is well under $60,000 a year. And whether or not you think that they should have to go to college or get any kind of advanced degrees to be teachers, they certainly do at this moment, which means that teachers have an enormous amount of student debt at the same time that they're paid substandard salaries. I don't have to tell you anything. I'm sure you've read the stories about how frequently teachers are asked or not asked, but volunteer to use money out of their own pocket to provide basic services for the kids in their schools. And there has been a real abdication of authority, uh, of, of authority to control the poverty crisis to teachers in the education system as for decades we've been told that the way to pull yourself up out of poverty is simply to get an education and there has been this hero narrative of individual teachers who have been had movie after movie made about them how they're about how they're individually going to change the inner cities and change America so with all of that on their shoulders it's hard for me to understand a framing of teachers as somehow being imperious overly bold demanding too much and and to make, be making an argument about how they should have few less of an ability to advocate for basic salary rights and interests that they obviously need and deserve. Teacher salary, it's different in every state. It's, it's basically decent. It's, not, it's certainly not lucrative. Uh, they have very good comp uh, health compensation packages. They often have pensions and things like that that are don't, frankly don't even exist in other sectors of employment anymore. Uh, they have a lot of, they, and they have incredible job protection. I, the problem with, uh, with teachers is that high-performing teachers, teachers who are very effective, don't have a way to get, uh, should get, ideally would get better income, would get even better pay. And, and because of the influence of unions, it's all very standardized. And really, you just get, you accrue more pay from working there longer or from seeking, even in, in the middle of your career, from getting a master's in education, which I think is actually worthless. But you get more pay for that. We don't pay based on how effective the teachers are. And that's a, the unions have contributed to that dynamic. There are all kinds of reforms that one could advocate. I think the fundamental ability for individuals to gain rights for themselves by withholding their labor because we believe it to be valuable is something that shouldn't be impeached. And narratives that paint some of the hardest working and most important members of our society, like teachers, and in a light that characterizes them as kind of um, vultures or somehow overly demanding when truly I, I can think of few people who I think deserve their salaries as much or have impacted my life more than teachers, including public school teachers, including my own parents who were teachers. I think that's a real issue and I think it goes to the root of the solidarity issue that I have in this country. Teachers should not be framed as enemies. If you have a problem with a certain policy, let's talk about the policy. If there's something um, about the architecture of how we plan our society. Let's talk about that. But unfortunately, teachers are not concluded in many people's eyes, I think because of a lot of conservative framing, as workers, when I think that they're some of the most hard, hardworking and important workers that we have well, in the country. I had wonderful teachers. I mostly went to private school, and those teachers were paid less than their uh, their 
counterparts and in the shame. public sector, and they were fantastic. But and that's a shame, and that's why I think that you know there, there's a much broader conversation to be had about unions and why it is that different sectors have been able to secure different levels of rights for themselves. But certainly, the fact that one group gets more than another group, and I've seen this a lot in this conversation about the railroad workers, should not mean that you don't advocate for all of the groups to be getting more. Because I think that's what's obvious is that workers in this country are getting nowhere near across the board what they deserve. I don't know about that, but uh, I appreciate your radar as always, Brianna. More rising after this. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and White House medical advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci engaged in a heated debate on Wednesday at the monkeypox virus Senate hearing. Here is a clip from the exchange. Uh, but she's had the flu for 14 days. Should she get a flu shot? Well, no. If she got the flu for 14 days, she's as protected as anybody can be because the best vaccination is to get infected yourself. And so she if, she get it? if she really has the flu, if she really has the flu, she definitely doesn't need a flu vaccine. If she really has the flu, she right. should not get it again. No, she doesn't need it because the, it's the be, it's the most potent vaccination is getting infected yourself. Now, of course, to be clear, that clip wasn't actually about monkeypox, but rather about comments that Dr. Fauci made in 2004 regarding the flu vaccine and whether people should get still uh, should still get their shot post-infection. So, in this latest standoff, Paul challenged Fauci about why his previous comments seemed to contradict official guidance about COVID-19, which included urging parents to vaccinate their children even if they've already had coronavirus. Here's a little more from that exchange. We wonder. You know, why you seem to really embrace basic immunology back in 2004 and how you or why you seem to reject it now? Well, <clears throat> I don't uh, reject basic immunology, Senator, and I have never denied that there is importance of the protection following infection. However, as we have said many times and as has been validated by the authorization of the, by the FDA through their committee and the recommendation by the CDC through their committee that a vaccination following infection gives an added extra boost. And that film that you showed is really taken out of context. I believe that was when someone called in who had had a reaction to a vaccine and asked me through a telephone in the interview if they should get vaccinated again. So it was in the context of someone who had a reaction. And as a matter of fact, Reuters fact check looked at that and said, Fauci's 2004 comments do not contradict his pandemic actually, stance. Actually, words don't lie. So interesting exchange. Fauci saying that he was specifically recommending that for someone who'd had an adverse reaction to a vaccine mm. and almost, I think, reassuring them that, but since you've had, now that you've had the flu, that's like getting vaccinated. Um, but I do take Rand Paul's comment that, and this is generally true, that we don't, when we talk about, or when the, or when the CDC talks about, when the medical advisors talk about how protected you are from COVID, they say, you know, have you had a booster? It, however many it, shots you've had or boosters you've had, 
whether you've had COVID itself should like count as one of those because it does offer protection the way those things do. And uh, and there, in general, there's not been enough conversation about, well, have you had it? Because that's, you know, if you're saying people should get vaccinated and then people should get boosted, well, it, it's like they've been boosted if they've had it. Now, maybe they should get an additional booster beyond that, well, but that- it, it's not... Is that true? Because my understanding was, and again, I agree with you that there should be more conversation because I don't know. Like I'm sitting here saying my understanding is, but my my understanding is that COVID, getting COVID gives you about a month or so of booster-esque protection that you're unlikely to reinfect. Although we did see people like, I don't know, Joe Biden get reinfected very quickly, and that's well, but that was a Paxlovid failure thing. Okay, but we've seen some that high profile, profile picture uh, people. Even Anthony Fauci had multiple infections. But both this year. both those cases are to- are different. Um, it, the Paxlovid rebound thing, where so my somebody I I, I know who's a, a Ron Bailey who writes for us at Reason Magazine. His theory is if you take it, some people who takes take Paxlovid. Um, it packs it does such an effective job at shutting down the infection. You don't develop antibodies. So then when they finish the course of Paxlovid, it just like hmm. it comes. It's not like you're getting infected again. It's your body sure. hasn't on its own fought it off yet. Sure, it, so it, 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 you have to go through it, that. It seems to me that the issue really isn't whether or not COVID protects you. I think that's pretty much broad, broadly acknowledged. The question is whether or not it protects you for as long as a booster would protect you. And if it's worth getting the additional support of a booster, if in fact getting COVID only protects you for a month or so, and if in fact the booster protects you for longer than that. Um, So again, this does feel like one of those times when this isn't a particularly political issue. I know that because of the way that certain people in the Biden administration and the CDC have kind of wielded the idea of science as a weapon, what I'm about to say, is stigmatized now. But at the end of the day, I really do just, I want to know the science on this. Well, I, I don't think they're even claiming that, that the booster protects you for longer than having just had a prior infection does. Because in fact, they're not claiming that the booster or the vaccine at all uh, will prevent, they, like they just don't make that claim now that it even prevents you from getting, uh, from catching the illness. It. Now, our best guess, it seems like it probably does give you maybe some protection yeah, for a little thought, while, but it's not that saying that. It's just saying that when you, if and when you do get it, you will have less, uh, you, you have much less likely of experiencing severe disease. So That's the what, only claim being made the, by it right now. The, this booster is the first new COVID yeah. intervention that is actually tailored to, to the variants that are out now. And again, I think that part of it, it's nobody's fault, but until the thing is out there and we start to observe what, how they, it works They literally and why, don't know because they didn't have time to test it on tons right. of pieces. So we will right. find out in time we'll how out. effective it actually is. But I thought that the hope was that because this one is actually tailored to the variant, the likes of which we haven't had since the very first round of shots, right. that it will have a more protective effect. The way that it seemed like the vaccines did have more of a protective effect in the summer of 2020. 2021 than they than they have had yeah they were well right then delta was but that's when delta was then delta came in and and it was exactly exactly we don't really know it seems like both the prior infection and various boosters offer you there's a window of actual uh protection maybe Mm -hmm. from transmission we don't exactly know how big that window window is. It could depend on the strain. It could depend on the individual. Yeah. It could be very small. It could, for some people, just happen to be larger. 
Um, and, but, and then there is also, in both cases, protection, uh, greater protection against severe disease. So it's, they're kind of comparable things. Now, obviously, to get the protection of, uh, of, of prior infection, you have to actually get COVID, right. which is the very thing you're trying to avoid. Right. So it's not, it's not, not exactly like the same thing. But what Rand Paul really does harp on in these hearings, I think correctly, is that, uh, is that especially if you're talking to vac- you know, resistant people, uh, people who are resistant to getting vaccinated, you know, if, if they've not been vaccinated and they've not had COVID uh, and, and they're older, they, particularly if they fall into a risk category, it really is important for them to get vaccinated. Uh, and you could make that case to them. But if they already have the antibodies, they might have some protection, might, quite good protection against severe disease. And is Fauci arguing against that? Well, then they get into it. Yeah, Rand Paul doesn't think that he emphasizes previous, that enough. Yeah. Well, but then when we're talking about kids, because we're because we're requiring it in some in DC schools again. We've, we've talked. Don't want to talk about this again, again. But they're going to require even kids, young kids, um, or high school age kids. I forget exactly what the age cutoff is, but to return to school this fall, you're required to be vaccinated. But something like 70, 80%, maybe more, we don't know, somewhere around there, have already had COVID and thus have the protection, equivalent protection of like one layer of shots. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't make any epidemiological sense anyway, because it's not really doing anything for cases to require those. But that, uh, and, and uh, you know, Fauci will say, well, I'm not necessarily, I'm not recommending that. But uh, maybe he could speak out against that. Maybe he could say, do not mandate this for kids. It's worse for the health to not have them in schools, especially when, especially most of them have the vaccine equivalent protection. Maybe they sh- it should be up to them to get vaccinated if they want to, but they have vaccine equivalent protection. You're talking about just the DC school mandate. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, again, very happily from your camp's perspective, that's the only mandate that seems to be left in schools around the country. And Dr. Fauci will no longer be around very shortly uh, in the position that he's in to be uh, the focal point for all of these kind of criticisms. So I'm curious to see how politically relevant these kind of concerns continue to be a few months from now, uh, as it does seem like there's growing consensus about what needs to be done because of folks like you have, who have really been ringing the alarm bell, I think rightly so, about some of the inconsistencies that have come down the pike. Well, and, and you know, many on the left have, have, got, have grown tired of the kind of endless mandate regime and how that actually conflicts with a kind of my body, my choice um, ethos. And I think, I think everyone is kind of coming around to the, you know, the DC might be like, is almost virtually the literal last holdout for some of these incredibly strict uh, mandates or mandates on populations for which it makes absolutely no sense to have one. So glad we're, hopefully we don't have to talk about it very much anymore, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. A dream. <laughs> More rising right after this. According to a new survey, most MSNBC and CNN voters believe that disinformation is pushing Hispanic voters to the Republican Party. The survey by WPA Intelligence found 57% of MSNBC viewers and 54% of CNN viewers said the spread of disinformation was causing Hispanics to vote red. Meanwhile, 16% of MSNBC voters and a fifth of CNN voters said Hispanics have internalized racism and a desire to fit into white society, which is causing them to lean Republican. The survey also asked how many CNN and MSNBC voters themselves have bought into false stories. Joining us now to weigh in on this data is Abraham Enriquez. He's the president of Bienvenido. Welcome, Abraham. Good morning. Thank you for uh, inviting me. 
Yeah, great to have you. Uh, what do you make of this? Is uh, our Hispanic voters being tricked by lies and misinformation in order to join the Republican Party? Is that what's happening? Yeah, look, Robbie, I don't think I would give uh, misinformation or disinformation too much credit. Um, if you know the Hispanic community, you know, at Bienvenida, we have dis discussions and conversations with Latinos all across the, the country. Um, and poll after poll after poll shows that the number one issue that Latinos care about is, is the economy, right? Uh, and inflation as it has reached a 40-year high has really crushed uh, budgets, Hispanic budgets across the country. Um, and when you look at the Hispanic family, we're a multi-generational family. Latinos have more children, therefore more mouths to feed. Um, and we have less money to be able to do that. And so as midterms are, are coming up, you know, I think that Latinos uh, really are starting to see that the Democrat Party hasn't done a good enough job uh, to to provide economic relief and economic opportunity uh, within the Latino community. So uh, while Democrats might, you know, uh, throw the ball and throw the blame at misinformation, what it really comes down to is they haven't really been able to provide policies that Latinos have been able to feel within their homes. So uh, I think what we're going to see in November is uh, Hispanics aren't really voting for party like we've seen in the past previous years, but more so voting for policies and candidates that have been able to really articulate the importance of conservative leadership um, and fiscal responsibility that provide uh, economic opportunity for Latinos all across America. Abraham, I definitely think you're right about the focus on policy. It seems that both parties, for different reasons, have abandoned the conversation about policy. I think Democrats, because their donor base doesn't want them to follow through on the things that it says that it wants for people and working class people. And Republicans largely have leaned into a lot of the culture war uh, conversation to avoid their unwillingness to address some concerns. I remember particularly that, uh, reading that Latinos were the most underinsured group in the country. And I wonder what, if any, policy prescriptions have come down the pike that potentially might have an effect on voters uh, in midterms or in the next uh, general election cycle? Well, look, uh, Latinos are very hardworking, right? And I think the, the important thing to, to note here is that from 2010 to 2019, uh, the, the poverty rate within Latinos dropped by 40%, meaning that we're a very mobile, uh, upward mobile demographic, right? So when it comes to political outreach and candidates coming into our community, we want candidates that, that speak to our aspiration uh, and not make us feel like victims. Um, and in this past uh, you know, election cycle, gearing up to the midterm elections, truly see the difference in how Democrats are outreaching to Latinos, really sticking to that rhetoric of uh, victimhood and the need for government assistance, the need for government care. Uh, and the Republican Party really has shifted gears and started talking more uh, to Latinos in a way that they we're not seeing the need to assimilate to a culture that really isn't ours. We're truly met where we're at uh, with talks about economic opportunity, uh, talks about how conservative leadership, again, uh, is a leadership in past conservative White House that has uh, allowed Latinos to see like the lowest unemployment rate, um, the highest number of uh, four-year university within Latino students. Now more than ever, Latinas are opening up businesses uh, than any other uh, demographic. So I think that when politicians are are able to go into the community uh, and really sound off policies that have made room for those uh, economic growth is how you win the Latino vote. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting because despite working so hard, they're still the most underinsured uh, ethnic group in the country. Something that really uh, resonated with voters in Nevada, for example, when Bernie won that state and the culinary union rank and file broke away from the leadership, particularly on the issue of health care. I think a lot of folks are concerned, especially small business owners, that their ability to start a business, to grow their business is really impacted negatively by the responsibility of employers to provide health care for their employees. And a lot of folks especially in the business community, are increasingly understanding that a universal health care system is a, is a, a real boon um, for entrepreneurship. But I'd like to get some other, uh, put some other poll results to you, if I could. Uh, the Texas Tribune reports that immigration and border security are a leading cause for voters to flip from Democrat to Republican. The predominantly Hispanic border town, Terrell County, had only 12 percent of its registered voters cast ballots in the Republican primary back in 2014. Fast forward to today, and that number has nearly tripled. In 2022, 31% of the county cast ballots in the GOP primary, compared to just 10% in the Democratic primary. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal reports that working-class Latino voters have their eyes on one thing, as you've said, Abraham, the economy, causing another split from Team Blue. However, Democrats do have a leg up on the issue of abortion. According to new polling, inflation was the main concern for Latino voters at 48 percent, while women's reproductive rights and abortion rights were the top concern for 28 percent of those surveyed. Addressing gun violence, mass shootings, and improving wages were the third most mentioned concerns. So obviously, you know, we've all been following the polls, the prospects of the Republican Party, the Democratic Party for the November election. Things were looking pretty good for Republicans, I would argue, a couple weeks ago, and now less so for a variety of reasons. Um, I, there is some evidence, right, that the Dobbs decision has moved people back into the Democratic fold. Um, the economy maybe has improved in, in, by some measures, uh, getting a little pressure off Joe Biden. Uh, you know, what do you make of of how or how could Republicans, you know, kind of close the deal and actually take back um, uh, uh, power in the midterms, uh, given the way things are going? You know, I don't give too much credit to the Supreme Court ruling, of, you know, leaning Latino voters specifically to the Democrat Party. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I think that when it comes to the pro-life issue and women's reproductive um, uh, stances, when you talk to Latinos, I think whether wherever you sit uh, within left or right or even in, this, in the middle, one thing that we can all agree on is that America, for a very, very long time, we've had the most uh, extreme radical abortion laws in the books, right? I think when you talk to most Hispanics, um, Democrat registered Hispanics, they even say, yeah, my party has embraced this late-term abortion uh, rhetoric that I don't agree with. Uh, so while the Dobbs decision maybe did sidetrack a little bit of, of uh, RNC outreach and Republican outreach, I think when you talk to Latino voters like the voters in South Texas, they're still very much so pro-life and they still believe uh, in the importance of, 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 you know, saving and protecting unborn children. And, and the Democrat Party really hasn't done a good job of laying a clear boundary of, of where it, when, it, when it becomes too extreme. And this idea that you should embrace late-term abortion, sometimes even minutes after birth, I think that's something that doesn't sit well with Latino voters. Uh, we talked about, you know, South Texas and how uh, open border policies and border security has really... Uh, push Latino voters to embrace Republican candidates. 
Uh, Myra Flores down there, for instance, uh, flipped a Democrat seat that was under Democrat control for over 150 years. She did that by running a very solid campaign that focused on the issues of security. So when you go down to these rural cities, right, where, where most Latinos um, are at, things that they're talking about are inflation, the economic crisis, and border security. They're not so much talking about uh, this pro-life issue, right? So I think that uh, we're still, we still have enough time from now to November for border security uh, and the economic crisis to be leading a charge into why Latinos will be voting uh, conservative um, more than in, in previous years. Well, I, I do have to note that, of course, the term late-term abortion is a, was invented by Republicans. It's not a term that Democrats have embraced. Only a very small fraction of abortions happen after the first few weeks of the second trimester, uh, much less in the third trimester. And when abortions do regretfully happen in the third trimester after a mother has carried a baby to almost term, it's overwhelmingly because of harms to the mother's life, uh, the baby itself is not viable and will be born into a great deal of pain. And unfortunately, what's at stake right now is whether these conservative policies will prevent women from making the kind of health decisions for themselves and their children with this threat of a federal abortion ban that overwhelmingly voters of every demographic group uh, reject. So we'll see how that plays out. We really appreciate you uh, joining us here today, Abraham. Thank you. And happy Hispanic Heritage Month. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month. We'll have more rising after this. Lawmakers appear to have used information obtained in the work they do in their committees to influence how they buy and sell stocks. Imagine that. According to a recent analysis by the New York Times, 97 lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, over half of whom sat on congressional committees, were found to be engaging in these practices that presented potential conflicts in stock trading. Legislation to ban stock trading was introduced in February, but when pressed about why it hasn't passed yet, this is what Speaker Pelosi said at the time. We believe we have a product that we can bring to the floor this month. It, exciting. Well, you know what? When the bill comes out, you'll see what it is, and those are some of the discussions that go back and that go back and forth. But I'm 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 pleased with it. It's very strong, and but again, it. In order, just because, what do they say, they have 60? That's not, that's not even a quarter of what we need, a third of what we need to pass a bill, uh, regardless of how bipartisan it is. The fact is, uh, the ethics, they're all, the Committee of Jurisdiction is the House, House um, Administration Committee. They have to make sure they're in sync with the Ethics Committee and this or that, and that's called legislating. Yeah, she seems so pleased about it. <laughs> Back in February, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and other Democratic and Republican members introduced the Bipartisan Ban on Congressional Stock Ownership Act, which would force members of Congress and their spouses to divest from all stocks so long as there are no conflicts of interest. Violating this law would come with a hefty fine of $50,000, although even $50,000 pennies is, uh, well, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not, not pennies for all of them when they start out, but it's pennies compared to the millions you can make, you know, buying and it's, selling it's stocks. It's pennies to the ones that have made, exactly, right, made millions right. off of these uh, uh, insider trades. Look, what a stinging indictment of our country mm -hmm. that on a bipartisan basis, you have this level of crookery right that there is no introspection that, that the fact that that um that our elected officials have had basically no bar to using the information that they learn in the context of their duties 
as legislators that have enormous effect mm -hmm. on the markets. There has been no barrier and no interrogation of why there's been no barrier to them doing stock trading all of this time. And now that there's a bill that's finally come, coming down the pike, and I got to give some credit to the progressive legislators that we have in there now who at least are ringing the alarm bell on some of this stuff in a way that can be heard and are able to embarrass Pelosi sufficiently that at least she has to make the motions of doing something about it. But the fact that it's taken this long, I mean, what does this mean about our democracy? And what does it mean that they probably, it sounds based on Nancy Pelosi's statement there, it doesn't seem like she's especially confident that you're going to be able to get the, you know, the finished votes. product is going to be riddled with, you know, exceptions and loopholes, right? It's Even gonna, if it gets passed. Yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the hardest things to do is get is is get Congress to regulate itself. Loves to regulate you, me, everyone else, every aspect of our society. Um, you know, when you can take a take a mask, put those, put it off, uh, all vaccines, all that stuff. But not itself, not its own ability to profit from the knowledge it has as 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 the people who make the rules for how these transactions are handled and what you're allowed to do and what sectors are allowed to do what you know vast powerful the industries the pharmaceutical industry the uh, technology um, aerospace everything goes through them they have all the power and they want to profit from it, it so getting them to not it like it's like trying to get I don't know, like cats to vote to agree not to eat mice or something <laughs> like it's the yeah. thing they do yeah and i just gave progressives in congress some credit but let me just Take it back uh, immediately. Because, look, Nancy Pelosi, the progressives get a lot of flack for causing Democrats to lose elections. They're blamed for every down ballot disaster, even though blue dogs are the ones that really crashed and burned in 2020 down back ballot. You know, but the reality is that Nancy Pelosi features in more attack ads against Democratic candidates across the country than people like AOC and the squad. Nancy Pelosi is the figurehead of the, the Democratic Party, so much so that yes. one of these candidates I just saw had to say, oh, by the way, you're running against me, not Nancy Pelosi, because they know how polarizing she is. Around the time progressives were arguing for force the vote, uh, which was an effort to get uh, to not vote for Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House unless she gave certain concessions, if at all. You know, one of the things, one of the statistics that was so important was that I think something like 75% of, of all Americans didn't want Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House, including a good number of Democrats. And yet, and yet, we don't see even progressives in this moment coming out and saying, how can we as a party support as a leader someone who is so lukewarm on this and who has been this. demonstrated to personally profit from the very rule that she's dragging her feet on, on, on changing. Yeah. That, that is the country we should live in. We should live in a country where people on a bipartisan basis, if there's really a populist movement, there has to be a level of adversarial politics that really highlights the contrast between what these leaders want and what the populist uh, um, this is such a good opportunity for, uh, you know, uh, Republicans who who want to channel right populist frustration or frustration that many of their very conservative voters have with like Pfizer or the pharmaceutical yes. industry, like hammer. The, they want to hammer the Democrats I mean, deservedly for their close uh, relationships with. And I mean, obviously, Republicans, Republicans have them, too, well. but many problem. Democrats have them. And, and, but these Republicans say this is a, a way to stop. 
um, uh, Congress from putting forth policies or regulations that that's, that you don't like that are that are to benefit big business and then ultimately to benefit those very exact Congress people, their pocketbooks. Um, so they should raise that issue. They should make it make it a class issue. Make it a yes. make it a citizens versus the political class. Yes. And in addition to being and the not, less wealthy and, and less well connected with the with the yeah. with the insidery wealthy corporate croniest yes. collusion and, and, and regime. Yes, and specifically not partisan. So I want to see. I would like to see progressives saying, "Don't vote for Democrats who take money from mm -hmm. banks. Don't vote for Democrats who take money from the pharmaceutical industry. Don't vote for Democrats right. who are willing to back a bill like these, this." And these aren't even and, like, and Republicans saying the same thing. I want to see Republicans saying, "Don't vote right. for corporate Republicans." And to be clear, this isn't even. These aren't even campaign contributions we're talking about. Right. We're talking about people personally just making money from access to information they have. When, like they've been caught. Several Republicans were caught. Um, uh, was it uh, Senator, former Senator Burr, um, Kelly Loeffler, I think? Mm. Those were the. Let me not. I don't want to be like libeling people on air. Uh, <laughs> Kelly, yeah, Kelly Loeffler was accused. Uh, who is the former senator of uh, of uh, in Georgia, and I believe it was Richard Burr. Um, uh, uh, stock trading. Yeah, so they, they were both accused yeah. of essentially of like having knowledge of what was going to happen from because like think about what they have access to. Yes. They know before everyone else that maybe COVID is going to be a lot worse than the people right. know yet, and or, that or there's going to be chips, wholesale shutdown. This Chips Act bill, that, Nancy Pelosi's that. husband dumped uh, Nvidia stock beforehand uh, to the t uh, avoiding. Uh, uh, sorry, worth up to 500 million at a reported loss in advance of that. So, you know, over and over again, there are these connections. It's ridiculous that it's not a bigger deal. I wish we spent as much oxygen on these kinds of things as we do some of the culture issues, because while we're fighting, Robbie, you know, I yeah. said this before, about what color uh, a fictional fish's skin should be in a Disney movie, <laughs> this is this is what the elites of both parties well, are getting away with. Well, we have to, so yeah, <laughs> so just to be, Richard Burr's brother-in-law called the stockbroker one minute after getting off the phone with the senator. Um, after, a, after a meeting of the Senate Intelligence Committee about the impact of coronavirus, seen his brother-in-law dump stock before the market dropped in March 2020. Uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just as, just as uh, maybe not just as unbelievable as whatever's going on with Ariel. And, and, uh, <laughs> I saw a lot of debate about, <laughs> I won't get into it. Whether she should be clear? No, whether, whether, would you rather hang out with someone who, what if it was just fish top, human bottom? That's how we'll bring this country together. All right, all right. More rising after this. <laughs> LA schools shared a quote, food neutrality video on the Instagram of LA Unified School District Human Relations, Diversity and Equity, or HRDE. Love those acronyms. The LA Parent Union is saying this video is telling students that their parents lied to them, that no food is better for them than any other, and that HRDE is working to undermine parents and hurt kids. So let's take a look at the video. I got us donuts. Those are so bad for you. Oh no, are they moldy? I mean, no, are they poisoned? Do, are you allergic? No, I'm just saying. Mm. You're judging my food choices based on a false standard of health again, aren't you? Guilty. Diet culture, fat phobia, and systems of oppression have created false hierarchies of food and it shows up everywhere. For instance, harmful thought patterns like earning food through exercising or that dessert is the reward for the punishment of eating vegetables. Remember that you do not need to earn food. We are all incorrectly taught from a young age that our size and therefore the foods that we eat are markers of our self-worth. Moralizing food can lead to harmful relationships with food and disordered eating. Instead of focusing on good and bad choices, 
Try to approach food with neutrality in mind. The only foods that are bad for you are foods that contain allergens, poisons, and contaminants. Or food that is spoiled or is otherwise inedible. Eat without guilt regardless of what society says. Well, I don't think this is great advice. Um, no, all foods are not equal. You should strive for a balanced Look, people shouldn't be starved because we're afraid of giving them not the best quality food, I guess, but, uh, but yes, you should have vegetables and fruit and some protein and not just eat donuts all the time. Like, the, people's instinctual reaction to this is correct. Yeah, it's interesting because I thought I was going to object to it more than I did when I actually watched it. So part of it is uh, it's like corny and silly framing. Like when you're confronted with a huge pile of donuts, the obvious truth is that one should not consume that huge pile of donuts. Right. But there is obviously some messaging that really does confuse a lot of dieters and I think has led to part of the kind of obesity crisis that we have in the United States where people think that foods like bagels are healthier than something like a donut when on average the donut has way fewer calories than a bagel because it's much less dense. And, you know, even that focus on calories is in of itself an issue because it's also, you have to think about glycemic index and how long it's going to stay in your system and whether it's going to cause your blood sugar to spike and have a craving and eat a bunch of other things. So I, I do think that, frankly, they're right to say that we need to rethink a lot of what we've been taught about the food pyramid and all of this oh, other the stuff. the food pyramid is a travesty. And, you know, you're absolutely right that guidance from government officials on what the right things to eat are have changed changed radically over our lifetimes. If you, the old food pyramid, it was, yeah, they wanted you to eat bread constantly. Yeah. There was like 9 to 11 servings. Like, well, I think it was 1 to 2 or 2 to 3 servings of vegetables a day, 9 to 11 servings of bread. Like, that, that's at all minutes of the day. You should be eating bread. Are you not eating bread? Go eat some bread right now. Yeah, it was crazy. And then yeah. we all got kind of carb-focused, which yeah. I, I still think is a much a much more accurate uh, portrait of health, that, that consuming excess carbs, if, especially if you want to burn fat or lose weight, consuming excess carbs is a really bad yeah. idea. I mean, that is basically true. Um, yeah. So that was not good good advice to shove, shove bread yeah, down everyone's faces. they told us faces. that eggs were bad for us. They really fear-mongered right. about cholesterol without distinguishing. Right. Right. Between good, good and, and bad, bad cholesterol. Fats. You know, all of that stuff is true, but it's also true that we continue to learn new things about the negative effects of eating too much red meat, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Is it all red meat or is it a lot of the preserved red meats, sausages, things like that? And look, it's a learning process on one hand, but also it's a lot of the misinformation came from lobbying efforts by the USDA who were trying to get us to drink a lot of milk and eat a lot of bread. By the way, milk and is juice. something that... <laughs> most ethnic groups can't drink. <laughs> this is not something that adults really should be drinking uh, of any species, <laughs> of any race. So, I mean, I... I Big well, I, cereal. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, no, it's true. No, I'm not, true. that's not a joke. Big cereal. Big cereal convinced us to yeah. serve bowls of sugar to kids yep. for breakfast. So, look, I, I think that this video is, is kind of corny and silly, and I think is overly precious. But I do think that, that what they're speaking to in good faith is a kind of misinformation that focuses on, I think overly focuses on diet culture, which has never been about health, but about appearances sometimes to the uh, yeah. detriment of health. And you, get, you do get people thinking that they should eat certain kinds of foods, have bad results, and then engage in other kinds of disordered eating behavior. Disordered eating is, is frankly very common, especially among young girls. Absolutely. However, this is you know this is fitting into the kind of new I uh, think or what fat acceptance that kind of thing. Um, they say anything about fat like being overweight or anything like that? They, didn't they say it contributes to fat phobia or something like that? Well, I mean, pretty sure they said that disordered eating and in fat phobia. I think they do relate to each and other. I don't, but fat phobia. Are we defending fat phobia? 
No, but no one should be shamed or anything like or bullied or harassed or anything. And some people are overweight for reasons out of their control, for their own genetics, etc. But it is not wrong to politely strive toward a healthier society and to emphasize to the extent it's it's possible or permissible or correct to do so in school environments, for instance, healthier lunches and exercise being a regular. I mean, that's not anything yeah, wrong with I, that. Yeah, I think it's that that's not, right. And I don't know that the, the women in that video would disagree with that either. They might. I mean, the conversation they might, about... Because I've had arguments with people like this, and they might. Well, you know, we we'll, maybe we, should, we can <laughs> get one of these women on the show to come and uh, discuss it with us. But this all comes as new studies find more children are developing obesity before leaving primary school than ever before, particularly among black children and youth type two. Uh, sorry, among black children and youth type two diabetes jumped seventy seven percent during the pandemic. This Johns Hopkins study finds that this form of diabetes doubled among black youth, nearly doubled among Hispanic youth, and decreased among white youth. So yeah, like I we think are much more overweight than we used to be. If you look at pictures from um, the '60s, the '70s, um, I was looking at pictures of people in the '70s because I'm going to a disco-themed <laughs> event tonight, and everyone is so much thinner, so much thinner, yeah. healthier, healthier, thinner. Not yeah. not like gaunt, sickly thin, but healthy thin. Yeah, they're more active and they eat better somehow. They did something right. Well, again, I think that that's true. That has a lot to do with our kind of habits, the fact that we drive a lot more places. There's no like riding your bike to school or walking to school or riding around because of people's safety concerns and things like that, warranted or not. Um, we talked a lot about people's kids getting picked up by CPS because right. they're left unattended yeah, by the, you know, the parks and things like that. But also there's been a huge shift in the food in, on the shelves that we receive. And so the composition of the packaged food that we receive, even, even if we make the same kinds of choices, there's a higher content of kind of harmful oils and a lot of obesity promoting materials in the food. That is the consequence of a lot of lobbying by these industries to get corn oil into basically any packaged product that you touch, not to mention the growth and size of antibiotics and the meat and all of the stuff that's happened for uh, economic reasons. So it's definitely warrants some scrutiny, but I think that there should be a balance between how much we focus on kind of individual choice uh, because individual choices matter, but can't really be affected on a policy basis. And, and when you see holistic changes, like you've observed from the seventies to now, I think it's worth paying mm -hmm. attention to what kind of broader structural changes have caused that kind of broad shift to occur. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's also a shift just from, remember Michelle Obama, let's move an emphasis on, that was one of her main people initiatives. Were was about that. That. I know people were furious, furious about, about that, that. But it was an emphasis on healthier eating, better food in schools yeah. to go from that to, I mean, I take it, you know, these are people of a kind of liberal bent saying that, oh no, actually we shouldn't stigmatize different food choices. It's, uh, are, it's kind of a... Again, I'm, I don't think that those are entirely the same thing. Like, I take your point. It's it's cringe and slippery the way they did it. I wouldn't do it that way either. But I do think most people need to know. I see people making terrible dietary choices all the time, thinking they're dieting, getting a bagel, getting a muffin. And I'm like, mm -hmm. just have the donut, girl. Like, it's fewer <laughs> calories. Like, those are real things to talk about. And, and those choices are made because of stigma on foods, not because of these kind of broader health science-based concerns. Fine, you know? fine to stigmatize bagels. They're an over, <laughs> overhyped food option. Uh, they are way too dense. You can never, you have to lather them with cream cheese to make them edible. I, kind of, my, I kind of agree, but I'm from New York, thing. so I can't say it out loud. <laughs> All right, more rising after this. A 
authorities in the United Kingdom allegedly protected Prince Andrew from American investigators' probe into Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking crimes. This is according to a new book written by the prosecutor who led the case. Jeffrey Berman, who was fired as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York by William Barr in 2020, claims his team was iced out when they tried to seek comment from the prince in late 2019, noting that Buckingham Palace and diplomatic officials refused to cooperate. Berman writes, quote, we got absolutely nowhere. Were they protecting him? I presume someone was. Perhaps unsurprising, but like that's that's part of what is so frustrating about these institutional like factors, like the crown, like the monarchy, is that they have been there for so long, and we understand their power. We saw the influence they had on the press during the whole fiasco with Diana, and then as it kind of repeated itself with Meghan Markle, how much control they have over the the British press in a way that I think the American press isn't quite as lockstep and protective of celebrities or or any one entity like that, um, that it almost makes us unwilling to challenge it. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, of course they're going to protect the alleged pedophile prince. Um, and it's, it's troubling. Yeah, it's gross. It's just disgusting. Well, and like I said, when we talked about the heckler, yeah. uh, uh, a heckler of uh, Prince Andrew deserves it. I mean, that's a, that's a thing that he is accused of. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about an institution's wrongdoing. We're talking about a person's wrongdoing. And and there's like there's we have a lot of questions. There's compelling uh, reason to be suspicious. Obviously, they the crown thought it was enough of a liability to shunt him off to the side forever. Um, so it's you know shunt him off to the side, but also have him walk behind yeah. uh, the queen's uh, casket. Look, there was a the 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 you know the 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 king who never was. Um, you know who advocated the crown. And, Edward the seventh. You know he was really right. excommunicated. You know, he was he was banished from the country, you know, for the crime Edward of marrying an American, uh, marrying an American. Right. And so, you know, it does seem kind of it's an interesting comparison to make that that's the kind of violation that will get you basically excommunicated. But being accused of something much more serious yeah. than simply not wanting to be king still allows you to take place in a funeral procession in front of the entire country that by the way cost millions of dollars by uh, paid for by a british taxpayer it, it's an interesting it's an interesting choice yeah it is look it, we should uh you know we i mean we don't have a monarchy in the u.s for a reason for i think a good reason yeah right? the mean, revolutionary it's a, war it's a very <laughs> it's an odd institution uh that i you know received a boost of popularity and has survived in part because queen elizabeth herself was very popular and has you know, ruled for 70 years. I'm not popular with all of the hosts on this panel, but uh, but popular Look, I, in I general. I watch the crown, and as a human being, as a humanist, like I, I understand the woman. Her. Like right. I understand she was a person who was put in a situation that she didn't expect to ever be in, and had to deal with stuff. But she also had to take responsibility for being a figurehead who chose, for example, to speak uh, in South Africa at the start of apartheid in a way that was not critical and was very supportive of this segregation state that was emerging under the crown. Like these are choices that individuals have to bear as well. And no one is perfect. And we all have these kinds of mixed records. And I think it's perfectly fair for people to reflect on her admiringly and have taken and to have taken something positive from her reign. But moments like this and the, the these, these stories coming out about the extent to which the crown, again, led by uh, Queen Elizabeth, chose to protect someone like Prince Andrew, who has been alleged of some significant wrongdoing, it can't not ask you to reflect on, on the queen's priorities. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. 
um, the extent to which powerful people have just been able to get away with, you know, in the Epstein saga, just things that are literally unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Like this whole thing would be unbelievable. But, but it happened. But it's true. But he had access to all these famous and powerful people. And they continued to, to, to interact with him well beyond the point where there's any plausible deniability of not knowing that this person is gross. Contrary, I think, to what you know, Alan Dershowitz said on this show when we interviewed him, uh, and you know, he said nobody knew anything. Nobody knew anything. Well, but the man this went to jail in the, get, in the early right, 2000s. He went to jail, went to jail for, for child sex, sex crimes. crimes. Exactly. Came out, went right back to it, and uh, and was able to get. And Dirsch was told that he was able to get uh, Bill Clinton on the phone instantly. Like that's it's just a level of access to powerful people that most people could never even conceive of having. Let alone, but why, why is this deplorable child sex criminal able to get it? Yeah. What yeah. does it say? Well, I look forward to hearing more from that book, and I think that there's going to be more uh, kind of discussion about what the crown means, particularly uh, by people who do live in the UK as people get past uh, their understandable grief and start to reckon with the system that they live in. But we will have more rising for you right after this. Yesterday, the state of Florida sent two charter planes carrying migrants to Martha's Vineyard. The move is the latest development in GOP governor's war with the Biden administration and Democrats over illegal immigration. According to the Martha Vineyard's time, sorry, the Martha's Vineyard time, the group of about 50 migrants hailed from, sorry. <clears throat> According to the Martha's Vineyard Times, the group of about 50 migrants hailed from Venezuela. In a statement, Governor Ron DeSantis' communications director said, quote, states like Massachusetts, New York, and California will better facilitate the care of these individuals who they have invited into our country by incentivizing illegal immigration through their designation as sanctuary states and support for the Biden administration's open border policies. Hmm. It's interesting because I, I look at that picture of that woman carrying that small child and, you know, I was not an immigration lawyer, and I don't want to steal any valor here, but I did have at least one pro bono uh, immigration case. And understanding the kinds of asylum cases that come across the border and the reason that so many people are fleeing countries like Venezuela, the sanctions that we put on, those, on that country, we talk about sanctions in the context of Russia and how ineffective they are and how they cause all these unintended downstream effects that hurt the people as opposed to the administrations. And I think... What a world we live in that politicians are using taxpayer dollars to fly migrants to other states as political pawns. I, I don't know. Like, I, I, they're human I, beings, they're and it's gross. It's, it's gross. They, they should not be you know, political pawns for just these kinds of ridiculous stunts. Um, look, I, we need, I, I support having immigration reform. I, I want to make it easier for people to come to the country legally. Um, you know, the, the, the rush on the border, it's unsafe conditions through which they come to get here. Um, they, it's not good for them. It's not just that it's not just a concern about a crime and everything else. It's unsafe for them. It's unsafe conditions. Um, if we want less of that, look, we're not. This is a great country. It's a wealthy country. It's a place of a lot of opportunity. People want to come here. It's a good thing that people come here. They can contribute meaningfully to our country. Um, they they can they can work. We need we need people to work. We need workers. So yeah. we should have a we should we should change our immigration laws. We should make it easier to come here illegally. Don't have to wait in line for forever. Don't have to prove. You you know, political persecution. You should just be able to come here and work and contribute 
productively to uh, to U.S. society. The Republican fear that well, we can't let you know, especially Hispanic immigrants in because they're all going to vote for Democratic policies is clearly not true. It's been totally debunked. <laughs> they're more, yeah. uh, in some ways, more socially conservative than the existing wealthy white population of the United States. So it doesn't make any sense, and it's good for our economy. They don't commit. Um, there's no more. The immigrants are not committing any crime in any greater number than native-born Americans is also the truth. So I don't see why we wouldn't just make our immigration laws more friendly to bringing people in here. Because I understand what you know the anger, the frustration people have with illegal immigration. Sure, sure. It should not, but, but the best way to make to have less you, illegal yeah. immigration is to make it easier to actually come here legally. Yeah, the, the I don't back, see what the downside is. The backlogs is. are real and administrative in nature, largely. It takes people, you know, people down at the border, immigration attorneys, uh, you know, the immigration law judges, they're, they're, they're doing their best in many cases, but the backlog is enormous and there's an unwillingness to fund those institutions that could process these people more quickly. Immigration policy could include doing things like helping to improve the conditions in the countries that people are fleeing from by... I don't know, part of it could involve legalizing certain, mm -hmm. uh, descheduling certain narcotics that are fueling the drug trade. Marijuana trade has, uh, illegal marijuana impor importation has dropped dramatically as marijuana is increasingly mm -hmm. legalized in the states and allowed to be grown here. We could do things as part of our immigration policy, like ease sanctions on countries like Venezuela that are in part in the way they, the way they are because of our own interference. We could stop trying to topple governments with our own intervention the way that we've done through uh, all kinds of covert actions in that part of the world. Uh, and, and instead, we right. put it all, all the onus on individuals who are going to do what individuals do when they're in dangerous situations and want to do the best for their families. I think it's really gross. And look, I think most conservatives don't want this either. They have some legitimate concerns about whether or not, you know, they, they see people coming here and they know that their own lives are precarious and they are confused by it the same way that people are upset about all the money that's being sent to Ukraine while their mm -hmm. lives are not good. It's not a lack of sympathy for Ukrainians. It's not a lack of empathy for immigrants. But Part of what is happening here is that we have to also help and protect Americans, and there's plenty of resources to do so. Right, and, and there's a sense that people, like I get the, 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 the people in border towns, border areas, border states, uh, it's, a, it's a, actually a lot of, it's red, red voters, mm -hmm. team red voters, uh, who are frustrated, they, you know, seeing the images of people uh, coming across in this very unplanned, haphazard and unsafe way and say, oh, this is, you know, this is what you want, Democrats and liberals who are in, in distant parts of the country not having to deal with the fallout of that. So I understand that. But the way to fix that is just to fix the immigration process, to de-empower, de de disempower the human traffickers, the drug smugglers, the the armies of truly evil people yeah. in in our southern border in Mexico who have contributed to that country becoming a failed state um, and we can, we can disempower them that's a little bit of a failed state it's pretty nice <laughs> We didn't play that. Uh, that uh, that uh, you, you want to live in? Would you rather live in Florida, California? You'd rather live in Mexico. A hundred percent. Those are my options: Florida, California, Mexico. Yeah. I mean, I, I might choose California, but Florida. definitely Mexico I'm, I'm or Florida. Florida. I'm not living in Florida. <laughs> but we can we can disempower those evil, hostile forces in 
in our southern on our southern border by legalizing uh, drugs, legalizing more drugs, um, and having saner immigration policies. It would be to, there'd be literally no downside. There'd be to everyone's benefit. Yeah, and in the meantime, and the Republican Party used to stand for uh, for more immigration. Uh, yes. in, the, I don't know if you've ever for seen that reasons. that infamous clip of there's a clip of Ronald Reagan and George H. W. Bush debating yes. in like what it, it would have been 1980, mm-hmm. uh, and they're trying to like. Like out, out pro immigrants, the yeah, other one. Exactly. It's it's, uh, it's just night and day. Uh, but but you know part of the the changing the, the fear was this this real political fear that because of the Obama era the amount of bragging Democrats were look at About our permanent majority yeah. of the you know the the replacement I mean they really were giving credence to that idea that there was a replacement under one A was beneficial to Democrats that was totally wrong it was just totally wrong yeah. but it really stuck with uh, with Republican strategists for a while and has contributed to things that are both politically and tactically harmful against the interests of the party. 100%. And then and inhumane and, and uneconomic and just yeah. bad on every level. <laughs> uneconomic. Look, if if Texas is funding free flights from the border to Martha, Martha's Vineyard, sign me up. I'm ready for some <laughs> vacation days. I mean, the whole thing is a little absurd. Yeah. How they're going to justify spending taxpayer money to fly people to a vacation destination. I mean, I, I get the optics, but had they thought about the optics? Right. Anyway. It's um, just a, such a, yeah. And it's it's optics with, like, suffering people who yeah. came here, who fled. Children. Horrible conditions. Families. Yeah. 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 All right, a lot of a lot of a lot of agreement here. Hmm, yeah. What is this? Hmm. It's, it's it's a day ending in Y, Robbie. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Hill TV is in the process of expanding, and with that, you have a chance to participate in one of our new pilot shows. Oh, how about that? If you're a woman who would like to send us a short video to tell us what issue is most important to you heading into the midterms, please do so. Or if you don't plan to vote at all, tell us why that is. You can send us a DM on Twitter or use the hashtag HillTV. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can catch us on the Plex TV app. All right. We'll see you next week. Next week? Is it Thursday already? It's yes. Thursday already. <laughs> see you next week.